So a warm welcome to you all as we continue to worship our King through the reading of His Word. If you've got your Bibles with you, won't you please take them out and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 25. Philippians chapter 1, verse 25. And the version we'll be reading from is the New King James. And it says this. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy and faith. In fact, let's also read uh, verse 26. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking, we've been obviously going through the book of Philippians, and um, we have learned much. And uh, I, I can't remember how many weeks ago I concluded what Paul concluded. He starts off this uh, beautiful, joyful book, and he gets to verse 21. And um, he has a conclusion moment in his life in prison. And, and, and of the conclusion ends up in verse 21. And so we've been looking at this verse as it goes on from verse 21 through to verse 25 today, and uh, perhaps verse 26. And uh, we have been looking at the implication of the statement of verse 21. There are two parts to verse 21. The first part is, he says, to live is Christ. The second part is to die is gain. We will not spend too much time, or we haven't spent too much time on the second part, to, li- to die is gain, because we can't understand what that means. We look forward to the day that we will be present with Jesus. And the things that we read about His holy dwelling, we will be a part of. We'll experience those things. So we are here on earth today, and Paul concludes in prison that actually while I'm in prison, to live for me is Christ. And so we have been looking at this particular statement, to live as Christ. What does it mean, and how does it impact you and I today? Because we live on earth. Jesus is not with us physically. We don't see him. He's with us in our, in our hearts. He lives in our hearts but we don't see him physically. So this statement for Paul is the conclusion of his life. He's been serving Christ. He's been doing all sorts of things, preaching the gospel, um, almost in some ways refuting. I said earlier he would, in this book, he speaks about those who are preaching the gospel from a wrong motive, from selfish motives, from places where they shouldn't, with, with the wrong attitude, whatever the case might be. But he says about those who are preaching the gospel, don't worry about them. It's good that they are preaching the gospel. Why? Because the word of God is going. It's going forth. So he doesn't really care too much about their motives. But then you go, jump, you go to the book of Gal- Galatians where... Uh, he almost curses those who are preaching the gospel. In the book of Philippians, he doesn't praise them, but he acknowledges them and says, it's okay, they are preaching the word of God. 
even though they've got the wrong motives, let them carry on. God will sort them out. He will deal with their hearts. But in the book of Galatians, he says, those who are preaching the word of God, he almost wants to call fire down from heaven upon them. Because why? They distorted the gospel. Philippians did not distort the, the gospel. So this is the conclusion he comes up with in verse 21. And so we've learned that to, um, that, that his conclusion is to, to serve God is the aim of life. The aim of your life, my life today, Paul's life in prison in that day was to serve God. How it looks like, I don't know. He didn't really know us. He was bound in prison. But he says the aim is to actually serve him who has called him and given him this life. And then he goes on to, uh, and he says, to serve God with fruitful labor. So even in prison, Paul expected fruitful labor to come from him serving Christ in prison. So do you expect fruitful labor as you serve Christ today, free in the world? Do you expect full fruitful labor? And he qualifies that in Ephesians 2.10 where he says that God has preordained, has foreordained good works for you and I to walk into. And if God has done that, it means we walk into that and it doesn't become laborsome. It's not tiring. It's not, oh, I've got to do this. Oh, no, no. It's full of fire. It's full of life. Even if it gets a little bit uh, feeling as though it's a bit laborsome, God revives us and he gives us the, the, the ability to continue serving and, and, and proclaiming his goodness, his gospel to a lost and dying world. So he, he says from verse 21 that the purpose of life, the aim of life is to serve God with everything in us. But out of that, he's prepared good works. He's prepared fruitful labor for you and I to walk. And we are to see these things as you serve Christ. We are to see the fruitful labor that follows us, that we see around us. Because not of your good works, not because of your skill and your intellect or whatever, because of Jesus Christ. He says he has gone ahead and prepared for you. Then the second aim of life, he says, is we are to be a blessing to each other. We are to be a blessing to people. And I made the analogy about the cross. Upwards, it's a relationship between God and us. And then sideways is a relationship between us. The cross is incomplete if it's one-way traffic. It cannot be just one-way traffic. You receive, receive, and our responsibility is to give, give. Now we arrive at verse 25, and we find the reason God put Paul upon this earth. Paul had no mere desire to dangle around on the frayed edges of existence. For Paul, for you, I hope, for me, it is not enough to live for a long time. Just to continue living for a long time without purpose. See, purpose gives life meaning and definition. Purpose gives life meaning and definition. So the purpose that God has laid upon you, our lives, as he says, as he's gone ahead and prepared good works for us, that's, there's purpose found in there. And that gives us definition. It gives us meaning. 
The Philippians needed him more than he needed to go to heaven at this time in his life. So he starts off, verse 25 says, And being confident of this, he was confident of his upcoming acquittal. Remember, he was in prison. He was awaiting trial. He was either going to be executed or released. But in his heart, as he's writing to the Philippian church, as he's writing uh, to himself and encourage himself, he's confident that he will be released. He is confident because confidence serves our orientation to life. We are confident that God places boundaries around us. Around what we do. It's God who does it. If he's gone ahead and prepared good works for us and we are following him, we are confident that there are boundaries that he set in place for us. For our good, for our benefit and for everyone around us. And Paul was the same. He was confident that he will be released. And these boundaries that God has put around him, the boundaries of the prison walls, as it were, gave him meaning. It gave him some meaning to his existence. Uh, in my head, it's hard to kind of imagine I'm bound, I'm in prison, uh, four walls. It was more a home prison than it is prison as we understand it today back then. But you're still bound. And because there are boundaries, physical boundaries that God has allowed in our lives, do we often think, what's the point of this? What's a, how, how does this work out? Paul actually said, these boundaries exist and give me meaning. They give me focus. They give me reason to live for him. I don't know how it's going to work out, but actually I know I'm called here for a reason. I know I'm called here for a reason. And he continues, he says, I know that I shall, be, I shall remain and continue with you. He was going to continue to live. This was what he was confident about. The Roman authorities would not put him to death. He would be delivered from prison. And then he continues and says, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress. Remember I said the, the cross, relationship upwards, downwards, being God in us, and then relationship between each other. He says, I shall, I shall continue to be with you for your progress. Progress means to go forward. It means to advance. Now, how is Paul to go forward? How is he to advance whilst he's in prison? It is the same word used in 1 Timothy 4.15, which says, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Is your progress evident to us all? The truth is that there are stages in our Christian lives, in our Christian growth, in our Christian progress. There are stages, just like when we are our normal life. You are born, baby, there's progress, there's growth to adulthood, isn't it? And life happens. They, and then people can see, ah, no, you are little. Now you are yeah high. And so you, you carry on. People can see your progress. People can see your growth. And it should be the same for us as Christians. People, us, family, G 
Jesus' children should be able to testify that I see growth in Wesley. I see growth in Marisa. I see progress. You've come from Yeha to Theha. From this place to that place. I can see progress. In our Christian faith, a Christian walk, we need to develop towards maturity in our faith. This is a progress of faith. Some believers are still baby Christians. And as you know, a baby's mind and body have not developed yet. They are still little. They still need to learn. They still need to grow. The same for some of our, the Christian faith as well. A new or static believer remains at a low level of development. Now, notice I say a new and static believer. A new, you can expect them to still be uh, kind of limited, but a, one who is an adult in terms of body-wise is seemingly an adult. However, they have remained static. They're almost compared as little children who are not mature enough. We don't see their progress. We don't see their progress. Others are adolescent believers. They are half child, half adult. They have not reached a point of independence. They still need their parents. <laughs> but they are resentful towards the authority of their parents. Teenagers. Teenagers still need their parents. But man, they don't really like when their parents tell them what not to do and what to do. I wonder if it's not the same for us as Christians. We still need our parents. We still need the, the, the fathers of, of, of the house. We need the mothers that those God has raised up. And uh, we maybe don't really like the authority that they might bring to correct us or to show us the way, the right way. Then you have the adult or mature believer. This is a Christian who does, not need de- uh, who does not depend on others to appropriate the principles of the word to his or her experience. He or her does, however, have interdependence with others. So the adult, mature believer knows how to, to appropriate the experiences of life based on the word of God, but they don't do it by themselves. They also understand, yes, I'm mature, Yes, I'm going. Yes, I'm called. All the, I'm, doing, I'm living this life for him who has called me. Yet I need people around me. I need those ones to, to look at my blind spot and say, Joe, careful. Don't turn there. Or whatever the case might be. But then we welcome it. We're not like adolescent teenagers who are like, uh, I need you, mom. I need you, dad. I need the food that you provide for me. But don't tell me when to eat it or how I must make it. And uh, we're not like it. We're adults who realize, actually, I do need fathers. I do need God's, um, those he has sent around to, to help us in this progress of our lives. And I'm able to take it and then work it out in my life. And I know that brings glory. Then he continues and he says, 
and joy of faith. So I will remain here for your progress and joy of faith as faith progresses, as we grow, as we mature, so joy escalates. Can you testify to that? Does your joy escalate? Are you joyful because you are maturing or not? Or are you actually not really joyful? You're actually a bit more grumpy. As, joy, as faith progresses, so joy escalates. The difficulty is that many of us in fact, let me ask this. Let me put it this way. How many of us here have been saved for more than two years? Please put your hand up. Three. Keep them up. Five. Ten. Okay. So, <laughs> so most of us here have been saved for more than three years. We've been walking this uh, path that Jesus has called for us for more than three years. The trouble with us me too, uh, I don't exclude myself, is that we end up enduring Christianity. We just end up enduring Christianity. There's little excitement anymore. Do you still have excitement about the Christian walk, the Christian life that God has given you? We have lost our first love, as we heard this morning from Revelation 2. And the answer to that is we need revival. We need revival. We need to awaken the reality of what we have and who we are. As your progression happens in your and maturity happens in your life, so joy escalates. And as it escalates, our life should be even more excited, even more lively. But we tend to be more reserved. We get to be a bit more grumpy. Because I don't know, yeah, we do, we do. Instead of grumpiness, we should be, what's the opposite of grumpy? Excitement, happy, life, I don't know. <laughs> and this is what it means, joy. Joy means to be animated about something in this verse, about something you believe in. This word is a word of enthusiasm. Are we enthusiastic about life? Not fake enthusiasm. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay, brother. I'm all right, sister. No, no, I am all right. I am, I'm good. I'm enthusiastic about life. When we brag about self, that is boasting in the unbiblical sense. So we don't brag about us. We don't brag, we're not, oh, I'm the man, I'm, 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 I'm mature. I, no, no, we, we acknowledge that inside. We thank God for what he's doing, but we brag upon him because of him who's causing us to mature. It's him who's leading us in this fruitful labor that he has for us. See, enthusiasm about the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross is the point here. Christians who are animated about their faith can be very expressive. Have you met, met those Christians who are just so animated? They just can't stop. Little bunnies. They just want to express. They just want to run around and say and, and proclaim this, this news that they've, this thing that's happened, that salvation, they have been rescued. 
They are just so animated. You remember, were you ever there? Three, five, ten years ago? These Christians love to talk about their favorite subject. The, the, Jesus Christ, my favorite subject. It's true of us, perhaps, of people out there at large. We, are, we become dull. We become down. We become a little bit closed in. I mean, if I walk around and look at you and I'm thinking, I'm like, looking, are you, Duncan, are you dull? Are you excited about life? You know? Where, where, do, where are we? And then this is what happens. Then I go to Duncan, and he's looking a little bit dull. And I say, Duncan, did you see the, the, the cyclist yesterday? Did you race? Did you see how they, man, then Duncan lights up. Or I go to uh, Kev, and I say, hey, did you play? And, and Glendale, squash, did you see the tournament, the tennis tournament? Did you see the rugby? Did you see the soccer? Some of us, we speak soccer, we speak rugby, we still dull a little bit. But others are alive. But then those who are loving rugby and soccer and all the, they become alive. This is how our Christianity, as we progress, as we mature from baby Christian and not remain static, where it just continues to, oh, woe is me, continually, but rather we become ecstatic, we become enthusiastic about life. And it's not a fake enthusiasm. It's not I'm standing here, I'm trying to enthusiasm, I'm trying to cheerlead. No, because Christ in me, I realize what he's done for me. So Paul realizes that the aim of life is to be a rejoicing people. We've got to be a people. Christians should be infectious with a rejoicing. We rejoice at what? From where we've come from. Remember the word of God said to you, once upon a time we were in the kingdom of darkness. Now, someone came and saved us and took us from, plucked us from the kingdom of darkness, put us into the kingdom of light. That in itself should give us such excitement, such animation in our lives. Even when I was lost, I was in darkness. But now, thank God for his mercy and grace, I am in the light. And then guess what? Not only am I in the light, I am living this life regardless of circumstances, but his word says that he has gone ahead for me and prepared good works for me to walk into. So actually I can take confidence in the situations I find myself in. Even if I don't understand, Paul, I don't understand I'm in prison. How's this going to work out? It does not matter. Because he, God himself has gone ahead and prepared good works for him. Even in prison, even in your circumstance, even in your family, your business, whatever the case might be, God has gone ahead and prepared good works for you and I. And that in itself should give us such confidence to be an animated, enthusiastic Christians as we carry on. So we get born again, we are enthusiastic, we love life, and we love expressing life and God and what is done for us. And then three, five, ten years later, we are a dull people. It, gone are those good old days. Good old days when I got saved. 
Um, and God says, the future is bright. I've got many, many, much more for you. Two, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive the things that God has prepared to those or for those who love Him. That cannot be an old statement. It's not like, oh, I'm saved, I'm excited. Oh, life just becomes... And that, that, that um, scripture is just, uh, it's, it's happened in those three, five, ten years. I'm here today. There has to be more. God has gone ahead and prepared good works for you and I. Paul says here in um, verse 25, I shall remain and continue with you. I shall remain and continue with you all for your joy in faith. It is important in the Christian life. To keep rejoicing. Keep rejoicing. Paul will say this again and again in this letter. It's funny. I mean, a year, three years, five, ten, whatever the, the number is, as the hands went up. The, 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 almost the church system, the, the systems of the world, the leadership systems, it, it, it would seem as though we the leaders seem to think it is their work to keep us people feeling guilty. They are say even church leaders seem to think it's their work to keep people suppressed, to keep them feeling guilty. Oh, if you don't tithe, oh, heaven will not open up for you. If you don't um, pray enough, God is far, far from you. If you don't do this or you don't do that, woe to you. Paul reckons no. Paul reckons it's his task to keep people rejoicing. It's my task. It's my responsibility as a man of God, in inverted commas, as you, man, woman of God. It's your responsibility to actually keep everyone around you rejoicing, to remind them of the day that God saved, to remind them of the victories that they've had, to remind us of where we've come from, to remind us of the provision that God has so graciously allowed us. When we were low and we did not know where we are going to turn, God showed up and he showed us. It's my responsibility to remind you so that I can encourage you. It's your responsibility to remind me and fellow Christians of these things that have happened so that we can move forward as a people. Then verse 26, he says, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. See, in verse 25, Paul was confident that he, were, he would be released, as I said, from jail. So that the Philippians would continue to progress in their faith and rejoice and grow and mature. And then in verse 26, he finishes this thought, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant 
in Jesus Christ. Paul picked up the word joy in verse 25. If there's progress and joy in the faith that we have been given, that we've been called to, then there will be more abundant rejoicing. When you're reminded of where you've come from, kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of light, man, then there's just abundance of joy because you're just so grateful. Because, but for the grace of God, where would you be today? And when you realize that, in fact, I can look at my life pre-Jesus finding me, and I can almost see the trajectory of where my life was going was gonna to end up. And when I look at that, I am great, gratefully appreciative. Is that even English? I am glad. I am so thankful. Jesus, you saved me. I don't know why, but you saved me. Thank you for saving me. May I never lose that enthusiastic enthusiasm. May I never look, lose that first love. Thank you for saving me. I know, I know I don't have much, yet you call me yours. You call me your son. And then you place things upon me, for me, to walk into and to, to, to see this fruitful labor happening in my life around me. Why? For your glory, Jesus. We often find ourselves in situations where we cannot rejoice. True, we do. When you look at life, we find ourselves in situations where we, it's hard for us to rejoice. It really is. But the Word of God never says we are to rejoice in our circumstances or under them. Can you imagine Paul in prison? Yes, he's hopeful he's going to get uh, released. Is he to be excited because he's in prison? I don't think that's uh, very likely. But you see, the focus for Paul, the focus for us, is that our joy is in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In Philippians, he says that. You and I can rejoice in Jesus Christ. Because he is always the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday when I was free, the same today while I'm, in bar, I'm bound in prison, and the same tomorrow when I'm released. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can always count on him. That is why we are enthusiastic about him. That is why we are happy about life. Despite our circumstances, despite our lack of, or the abundance of, I mean, that makes us happy, but despite all the negatives, we are to still remain excited and happy about life because we know who we, we serve. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Paul concludes, and he says, to serve God is our purpose, is our aim in our lives, for our lives. We are to serve him, and then he allows us to have fruitful labor. 
which he has already prepared for us. Number two, our aim of life is to be a blessing to each other. Number three, aim of life is to be a rejoicing people. So I am to rejoice when you are maturing, when I'm seeing your progress in life. You are to be rejoicing when you see the same for me as well. And then number four, the aim of our lives is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to leave us with two questions, but I, I want us to think that uh, we lay our he- crowns down, if it's okay. Um, again, but with this in mind, can I ask us, number one, what are you doing to advance the faith of others? What are you doing to advance the faith of my faith? What am I doing to advance your faith? And around us. Or are we just so consumed and concerned about our own faith? Are we maturing? Are we, what are you doing to advance the faith of our others? Remember the cross? What are you doing to give, give, give? And then the second question So I ask the question, let me make this statement. Biblical joy is independent of circumstances. It is focused on a person who never ever changes, Jesus Christ. And if that's the case for you and I, then I ask you this. Are you trying to get all your ducks in order? Do you hope to manage your life so that there are no more problems, that very desire will set you up and I for failure. Because circumstances will go wrong at some point. And the only one who will always be there for us, who's forever consistent, constant, always the same, is Jesus Christ. One of my um, saddest moments is to see my fellow Christian brothers and sisters and I, I, I know God has spoken stuff over their lives yet they are waiting for things to align to, to be in, in the right place so they can act yet they, they, so then you can see their enthusiasm their ecstaticness of life just, just starts weighing down slowly but surely Someone once said to me, Jesus, um, the language of love from Jesus is obedience from us. So if you're happy, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes. I, I don't, you can stand if you want to, it's up to you. But we're going to sing this song again. And I would like us to think of Revelation 2. Verse 4. This is what Jesus says to them. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, 
and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. God says this of us, of you, of me. I know that you do good deeds. Your heart is toward me. I can see all these things. Refute all that you should. You don't grow weary. You carry on. But then he would say this in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So you're doing all these good things. You're seemingly looking good to the world out there on the outside. But Jesus says, I'm proud of you for doing those. Thank you. But I have this thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. Which has led you to endure Christianity. Which has led you to have little excitement about this life that I've given you. You have lost your first love. We need revival. So as we sing this song, may I ask us in our hearts, be honest with yourself. You know where you are. And if that's you, you know. Ask God to help you to revive you again.